Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the upcoming. Doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter. We're here to talk about all the best and the brightest as they make their way to their dream careers. I'm your host, Jonathan Carr. Join me as we have a spectacular conversation with an equally spectacular person. You ready? Let's go. Hello, world, and welcome to The Upcoming, the perfect place to catch the best and brightest on their way to the top. Joining me now for The Upcoming's 31st episode is a woman who has immersed herself into the strange yet wonderful world of media. So from Colombia all the way to the United States, she has studied at the new school in New York City where she had her own essay and a short story published, both of which kind of tackle just how really you can address just the urban life and all the issues that we know are there, but we don't talk about nearly as much. And there's also, when she's not doing that, she's studying you know, just media, doing um, script analysis, helping handle events, and doing even designing websites. So she's has a whole host of uh, talents right there, and it's amazing to talk about. And now in Colombia, she is the head of press for CNN Colombia, which you know has her just totally diving into PR and press coverage. So it's gonna it's it's a lot of there's a lot of things she's had to handle, but she's handling them well. So let's just get down and talk about it right now. Joining me is the amazing Ana Gutierrez. How's it going, Ana? Great, Jonathan. Thank you so much for that uh, lovely introduction. I hadn't really thought about how many different um, facets of media I've uh, dipped a spoon into, but yeah, it's, it's. I find that when you start with one, you kind of start dipping into all of them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent makes sense. So, uh, Anna, as part of the upcoming, I take this moment to let my guests introduce themselves. So please indulge us. Who, in your own words, who and what exactly are you? I am a movie nerd. Uh, I think that's the best way to put it. Uh, growing up, I was obsessed with movies, with going to the movies. And like I said, so I started reading. So then comic books. So then Watchmen came out. So then um, and I always really wanted to sort of work in that area. And I feel like everybody thinks when you say that it means you want to be an actress or you want to be a director. And there is so much more to media to what goes in there. Um, so I just really wanted to start um, helping content get made. Uh, I, like you said, in Cine Colombia, I worked in distribution and distribution is the unsung hero of getting people to see movies. Because we always used to say every movie has their perfect audience and our job is to connect these people. Somebody's gonna love this movie and the whole point is for them to see it. And I just really love that step of taking something that somebody's worked so hard on, something that definitely has an amazing audience waiting for them and then figuring out how to connect those people. Um, and I'm just really happy to be here to be in New York, which is obviously, you know, one of the biggest media capitals in the world. I was actually in the first uh, Broadway preview last night of Fat Ham. Uh, it is an amazing Hamlet retelling set in the American South. If you guys are here, check it out. There was a bunch of like history making Broadway debuts last night that I got to see with a friend in the American Airlines Theater. Um, but yeah, my whole thing is that I genuinely love movies and everybody immediately is like, so you want to make movies? And I'm like, no, I want to help people see movies. Um, I like that sort of intermediate step of 
um, connecting to audiences. I love grabbing somebody's finished project and figuring out how we connect to people, selling cultural entertainment. Um, you and I actually met in a uh, publishing world uh, chat, which you know is also something of, of great interest to me. Uh, a lot of, it's a related field. Some movies get turned into novels, some novels get turned into movies. Uh, but I guess ultimately it just goes back to telling stories and to helping people tell stories, get those stories told. Exactly. You know, it's just, that's just the other side of you know, the media world of just economics. There's, there's production and there's distribution. You're on the distribution side. You're on like the business side, pretty much of this uh, entertainment industry. You're like the vessel that helps push like such creative projects and creative passions. Um, so other people get inspiration right there. Yeah, that's how I see it right there. And, you know, I gotta ask, cause I heard you mention Watchmen. Was that like the first film that sort of just made you realize that like film and like entertainment was your passion, something you loved or was it another, another movie? Uh, actually, no, this, um a formative memory. Um, my brother took me to see Kill Bill. We were probably mm -hmm. way too young to be watching Kill Bill. Uh, my brother's three years older than me. And we did not know at the time that it was part one. We just went in sort of sight unseen. And we were sitting there and the movie ends and it says the bride will be back in part two. And my brother and I just turned to each other immediately and we're like, well, we need to see part two. Like, we're definitely going to uh, see part two. Um, but also, I mean, I really, some of the ones that I really remember seeing in theaters was like the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like those were huge. And also um, the summer after, I mean, 300, um, which also is adapted from a comic book, but I didn't find that out for a while. Um, but the, that would have been what, like the fall after it came out. Um, you know, this is back when we were all buying DVDs and we went, um, some friends of my parents lent them a, a cottage is perhaps too generous, but you know, we were outside the city, we were hanging out. Um, and there's a TV with a DVD set and it rained nonstop. So we were inside watching movies a lot. And I remember I was watching it. It's a great movie, but we also, I think we watched it like three times with my brother. And it was one of those where I had time to sort of take a step back and not just have the, you know, the first time that you see a movie, but start to think about how it was put together and sort of like how and why it was working, um, which was nice because we had that time off. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously had, you know, schoolwork or homework or whatever that I also needed to get to. It was a brief holiday. Um, but instead we started picking this movie apart. Um, so yeah, I think those three are probably up there. And for me, Watchmen, uh, a very good friend of mine was like, well, you know, you really need to read the comic book, like the comics. And it is a very, uh, it's very much like a movie, you know, like the way it's put together. Um, so yeah, I would say those, those are the big ones, which, you know, now that we say, except for Kill Bill, those are adaptations too, you know, Lord of the Rings 300 uh, was also a comic book, Watchmen. Yeah, um, Watchmen. I you gotta appreciate how faithful Zack Snyder was to the comic books right there because that could not have been easy. And yeah, he, I, I absolutely, I saw that movie too, and I absolutely love it. It's so dark and gritty and 
so so interesting too. But uh, you, do you know that um, I, I'm sure you heard? But uh, when you got when you mentioned Kill Bill, I was thinking uh, I, I I saw because I saw that movie too, um, Volume One, and I thought to myself, Oh, Tarantino, a genius director, I absolutely love that guy. But uh, it also makes me sad too. For anyone who doesn't know, he's right, um, planning out his tenth and last uh, last film. You heard that? I, you know, I, I, I never think it's over until we're one hundred percent sure it's over. Um, you know, until until we have one hundred percent, like there's no way he can physically make another film. Uh, I'm just going to be cautiously optimistic that it's not going to be the last one. But yeah, I have I have seen them. Uh, pretty sure I've seen all of them, or at least most of them. Um, but yeah, he he's a I mean he's a fantastic artist. Um, he's really good at putting a film together. And yeah, I mean there's some really cool stuff that he's done, really interesting. And you always know a Tarantino movie when you're watching one, which is also kind of the mark of a great artist. Um, yeah, so it's been interesting. Yeah, they're they're fun. Um, I mean, obviously, I have a great soft spot for the Kill Bill movies, but Inglorious Bastards is probably my favorite. Just because that's my favorite too. It's that's... such a good movie. It's such a good movie, and it's just there's and... so many layers, but it works so well. Because if you think about it, there's so many stories being told at once, and yet it's a movie that you know you don't have any issues going through. And it still feels like a Tarantino movie, but it's got all these other elements. Um, and he's somebody who also just started loving movies. Uh, he worked at a video store, and that's kind of where he came at it from. And uh, I really love the way he references a lot of film, but it still feels fresh and new when he does it. Like, even though you know it's a reference or it's taking from something, he's really able to sort of tell his own story. And yeah, it's not easy to do either. Um, but yeah, I think he's done a, a fantastic job and he's definitely made his name, right? Like he's always going to get talked about. He, he will always be talked about. He's up there with the greats, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Guillermo del Toro. So I look forward to seeing his movie get nominated uh, in the Oscars in the future. Um, it probably will be, yeah. It 100% right. will be. Now that you mentioned Marty, though, uh, the best film opening ever, and I, I always say this because it's really hard to pick a favorite movie, but definitely the best film opening ever is the opening to Goodfellas. You know, that opening scene yeah, that they're in the car. As long as I remember, then, I always wanted to be a gangster. Yeah, he just slams it down that, and then it cuts to From Rags to Riches by Tony Bennett. And I remember watching it and I was like, this is incredible. Because obviously the first time I, I saw it, it was also, you know, on, on DVD, but I was lucky enough that there was sort of a retrospective cycle at one point when I was back and I was able to see it like on the big screen. And it just definitely, I think my favorite film opening of all time, Goodfellas. Goodfellas, yeah, that's also a fantastic film right there. We could go all day with just like, <laughs> we could go all day. But you know, it's, I mean, the more you talk about um, DVDs, it's really got me thinking, you know, cause we both growing up, like, I remember when I was a little kid, I would watch movies through like VHS tapes, and we both um, watched like DVDs, like and we had like Blockbuster and a bunch of other video stores. And now it's now it's Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu, Paramount Plus, all these streaming services, and like DVDs have become practically 
obsolete. I mean, of course, they're never going to like cease to exist. We all are still going to hold on to them, but it's just that sort of evolution and it's just that the distribution of films that's I know you've like you've seen and just kind of thought about as you study like a media and like looking to film and everything. So, how do you like how do you view this? Just that, just that, just evolution in uh, film distribution, and what do you think might come like in the future? You know, I, I do want to give a quick shout out to Blockbuster because it wasn't just about the movie; it was about the experience of going to Blockbuster. Um, I've seen a lot lately about how like teenagers today part of the problem is that they sort of can't leave the house and be unsupervised. And one of my big things when we were kind of getting old enough with my friends was a friend of mine lived close to a Blockbuster, so they would let us go to the Blockbuster like, you know, go on our own and come back. Um, so that was also part of the video store experience. Um, but, you know, film is over 100 years old, and I think it's got more than a century left in it. Um, people aren't, and I don't think they'll ever be over um, telling stories in this form, this audiovisual form, um, basically that, that which we call the movie. Um, but it's also, I mean, the great disruption of streaming is fairly recent. That was really the decade from 2010 to 2020. And then obviously we know what happened in 2020 to kind of boost that um, as well. Cause obviously there was that need to the pivot. Um, a lot of people had to pivot to streaming. I mean, obviously Netflix's stock went crazy because everyone's stuck inside. Um, but I think we need to remember that on the scale of things, it's still a fairly recent development and there's still a lot to be said. And on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of physical media bounce back. Um, we're seeing that with vinyl a lot. Uh, I believe Metallica bought sort of the, I don't know if plant is the word, but it's the place that made, uh, it makes a lot of vinyls. And they're like, you know, they're buying a lot of vinyls of our stuff and it would be really cool to be in on this. Um, but there's kind of a resurgence at the moment with physical media, largely, um, I don't want to use the word backlash, but as a reaction to streaming, you know, people are thinking, well, you know, I, if my artist pulls their music from Spotify, which we've seen, you know, um, Jody Mitchell, um, I think it was Neil Young too, mm -hmm. um, or Joe Rogan on Spotify. And, you know, it's, it's gone, but if you own it or if, you know, because um, iTunes, the original model is purchasing the song, not the streaming ability, but like the songs individually. And there is kind of a bounce back coming and people going, well, you know, you can't take a physical CD from me if something were to happen. And I think the pandemic might have spurred, obviously, streaming consumption, but I think it's also made people think, you know, everybody had to be like, well, what books are in my house? What jigsaw puzzles are physically in my house? Because, you know, at that point, we're all on screens, I think, like 20 hours of the day. Um, so I think there is people going back to being in the value of, of understanding what actual physical, collectible media um, can be. You know, we've seen it happen with vinyl, uh, and I wouldn't count it out as happening um, with film, too, with people, you know, wanting to have physical copies. So I wouldn't count it out. Um, definitely, especially because right now everybody's like, we're in the streaming wars kind of era and we still don't know how that's going to shake out. But I do think, um, especially, you know, when people are saying, you know, these things can go away physically, but we're also starting to think about, uh, like I said, the pandemic really made us rethink about our physical space. 
so I think it, there could be that, which is interesting. And also, um, you know, those DVDs that uh, I enjoyed so much as a kid, it wasn't just the movie. There was, you know, the special features and the bloopers and deleted scenes and all that, uh, which people still consume. I mean, if you if you go on, I mean, that's what we're seeing on YouTube, on Instagram, on so companies do know the value of those sort of extras, so to speak, and that connection that people want um, with the stuff that's made. I mean, a lot of the bigger Netflix stuff right afterward, you can play sort of a quick, it's like a mini doc on the behind the scenes. They've done that, as I understand, to great success with a lot of their content. So exactly. there is that desire. So yeah, I wouldn't count it out. Um, and I guess there's also the great question of, where technology itself is going next, right? Because I remember like the first cell phones, uh, you know, well, they weren't cell phones like they are now with streaming cable, like, you know, you weren't, you couldn't download stuff on your Netflix app to watch on the bus or, um, so, I mean, that that's gonna be interesting too, you know, where does that go? What is next? What, what kind of physical forms we want? Um, but I always, in the back of my mind, go, we still go to the theater. I mean, I was at the theater yesterday because that is still, you know, that's still an experience. That's still something different. That's still something that gives it value. Um, people still go to that. People still go to the opera. People still go to ballet. People still go to live music. Um, so there is value in that and in that sort of collective experience of watching something in a movie theater. I mean... Uh, it's kind of hard to top uh, a movie for a date, I think. So yeah. definitely that it's not that we don't enjoy watching movies at home, but I think there's still value in watching movies on the big screen in person. So streaming will obviously, I mean, it has changed the model. It's going to continue changing the model and our modes of consumption, but there's stuff it won't be able to replace. And also we don't know what comes next. So, uh, like everybody else, I, I'm also waiting to see what happens, but I don't think either physical theaters or even physical media is going to disappear. Yeah, but it's just, it got me thinking a lot about um, last year because, you know, most movies were like pushed to, were like put in the big screen and then pushed to streaming services or were just sent to streaming services, period. And then the one that stood out to me was, of course, Top Gun Maverick, where Tom Cruise is like, no, we are putting this in the theaters, it's staying in the theaters, and it was in theaters for a long time, before eventually uh, it was sent to like DVDs and like streaming stores and everything. But it was just like for Tom Cruise to insist, like a man who's been in cinema for a long time, be like, "This is this the theater is our sanctuary. This is where it's going, this movie is going to be." It just and to see it make such a huge hit at the box office, it really it really just proves your point right there that people will still will still want to go to go to the theater just because it's just the experience they've always known. It's what they always want to hold on to right there, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think there's still going to be sort of those tentpoles or like those experience events where it's like, no, we got to go see it. And it is true, you know, those setups, like it is, uh, it is very different to see things, you know, on screen uh, and even the audio quality. Um, I, this was another retrospective cycle that I went to, but 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, it was this version that had been totally remastered and they'd done a lot of work on the sound. And you could, the difference 
of just being able to be in a theater that has the ability to play the sound, it just completely changes the experience. And uh, I mean, again, that, that was another big pandemic lesson, right? Like people want those experiences and they got the value of an experience where you can go in person. So yeah, I, I mean, obviously the windows for streaming changed up and perhaps what we'll see is that like some really big movies that'll be the big, the big ones that are in theaters and then some that aren't, um, but it'll, it'll be interesting for sure to see. I. Yes, yes, it will. We'll we'll have to see. I'm and anticipate. Um, so, we you know we both also come from a field where uh, publishing sort of gets tied into media and everything, and just the distribution of it all. And so it got me thinking a lot about not just like original cinema and uh, like um, sequels and everything, but also just I just I just like to think of it as like sort of the arts or however flawed of uh, adaptations where you're taking, let's say a book or a mem like a memoir or a series of stories like Harry Potter or Game of Thrones or whatever, and you're putting them onto the big screen or uh, TV, YouTube, whatever, and just move right there. You know, they're obviously cashing in on an already existing uh, fan base, but in all the adaptations you've seen, you, what, do you think there might be? What do you think might be like missing for a lot of book adaptations? Because obviously, there's a lot of adaptations that just became complete stinkers. Like people hated them, <laughs> but there's also ones people enjoyed. You know? Yeah. Well, you're right. It is an art, not a science, definitely. Um, and it's so interesting. Uh, obviously, we feel right now. You know, there's so many not original, but like one of the most famous movies of all time is Gone with the Wind, which is adapted from a book. Um, ironic. Yeah. And you know, the famous, like the original Rebecca Hitchcock did a lot of adaptations too. And also um, the wizard of Oz too, which was wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, from the book for people who didn't know. Yeah. So, uh, I, I always think it's kind of a lot of moving parts. Um, because some of the best adaptations have been people who are like, I, I don't care about the source material. I'm just going to do whatever. And uh, Jojo Rabbit, for example, a lot of people don't know it's adapted from a book. And Taika Waititi was like, "I there's a really good idea here, but the rest of it isn't great. So I'm just going to do my own thing. Um, and that movie's fantastic. Uh, and then there's other ones where it's somebody who really, I don't think it's enough to love the source material because sometimes when you love it, you're sort of blind to its flaws or you're unable to, let go of things that won't work. I think more than a love for it, it's sort of a, a, an understanding of it. Like somebody, for example, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, going back to that, there's a lot of stuff that he changed, the bridge moved, but there's a clear sort of understanding of what the message of the story is, the underlying message, which, you know, we know that um, Tolkien was in World War I and, and his whole point was like, this is awful. And like the entire point is coming home, but also the scars of war always last. But in the end, we come together, all these things. And there's that sort of deep understanding of like how the characters work, how all the pieces work. Um, yeah, there's a lot. He changed a lot of stuff. He cut a lot of stuff. But that sort of, uh, I guess, sort of clear out of vision. Because sometimes if you, if you love something, you're too close to it. Uh, and, you know... It's funny that you said existing fan base because there's some really good stuff from really obscure source material or not even obscure, but not, you know, 
because Harry Potter, for example, that's such a gigantic inbuilt fan base. Um, but there's a lot where, you know, it's been small stuff or obscure stuff, or uh, I think sometimes those are even better because generally it's somebody who's like, hey, this book that I read as a kid, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And like, this is a story that I think could be told. Um, but there's also, I mean, as you said, there's a really great balance. There's stuff that works on the page and not in a movie and vice versa. Um, but there's, there's two adaptations that to me stand out, um, as truly sort of spectacular. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Mystic River book. It's a Dennis Lehane book. Uh, it was adapted by Clint Eastwood. It stars Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon, and Tim Robbins. And it is fantastic. Like they're really good. The book is amazing. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the book has a lot of detail. It's sort of two shifting time periods. These men that know each other as children, something terrible happens, and then they sort of crash into each other as adults. Um, and it's it's really, really good. And I saw the movie first, then I read the book. And the book is also really good. And it really struck me as to, they really feel like the same story and the same sort of, universe even though obviously there's a lot of changes um so if anybody wants to sort of do that comparison i can definitely endorse that because it's a great um it's a great movie it's a great book and then uh the one that i'm gonna highlight actually goes in the other direction which is you mentioned guillermo del toro um so uh pan's labyrinth which is in spanish uh, it's it's a fantastic fantastic piece of work and then the novelization he so funny because he worked with uh, Cornelia Funke, which is the, she's a German children's author who's wildly popular in Europe and in Germany specifically. And the book is in English. So it's like this Mexican guy in Spanish, this German author in German, they made this book in English and they expanded on the whole story and the sort of fairy tale vibe. And it just really fleshes out the rest of the world. But when you read it, um, it's clear that in the end, it is a story, sort of a fairy tale for adults. And the book is lovely because you could definitely give it to a kid. But there's also all all that in there for adults. And he specifically sought out a children's author for that. Um, so that is another one that I can really highly uh, recommend because you can see that translation because a lot of the stuff that just happens sort of environmentally in a movie where you can just show with the color scheme or with, you know, how scared people look or all these things, you have to give that same atmosphere, but in text. Um, so definitely if somebody wants to think about adaptations, just so you can look in both directions. Uh, but I, I think the core of an adaptation is really being able to break down the story and being, you know, that very old advice of being able to kill your darlings because there's stuff that won't be able to work and stuff, you know, you, I think you have to go into it knowing that it's not going to be a 100% adaptation because then that's just the book or that's just the movie. Um, so I think if you go in there with understanding what the story really is down, like boil down and what makes that work and then understanding that you're switching gears, that works. And I feel like most of the ones that fail, that's where the problem is. It's um, stuff like those adaptations of sort of Hunger Games style young adult novels that um, 
were just like, oh, the movie can just be like the Hunger Games. It's like you, you can see what worked about that particular story. So the film doesn't work. Others where it's like they tried to be too faithful to the original. And so, you know, somebody who didn't read the book is not going to understand what's going on. Um, or, you know, they're generally like, we don't really care about the story. We just want to put it up. So I think it's that. Um, I don't want to use the word sort of respect the source material because I've seen it work when people uh, don't necessarily sort of love and respect it. They just go like, I like the vibe. So I'm going to keep the vibe and like the rest of it can come. Maybe like just understand yeah. the source material. Just. Yeah. Understanding what may, I think what makes it work. It's like, why are we adapting the story? Something about the story has to work. So what is the sort of part of this story? Uh, but again, yeah, I mean, there's been others where you kind of get the feeling um, some not so great books have been adapted and, and you're like, wow, but the movie's so good. And I kind of feel like somebody reads it and goes, this could have been great. And it wasn't, but I can make it great. So that's why I didn't want to use the word uh, respect the source material, um, because sometimes that's what it is. It's somebody who's like, this story could be awesome and it didn't work here, but it could work here. Uh, I mean, going back to Gone with the Wind, people are like, the book isn't that great, honestly. And not, not even just because, you know, we've come very far as to what we consider acceptable. And people are like, the book is pretty, you know, is it? popular sort of pulpy romance story, but they really went, but we could do something sort of truly epic from this. Um, or even, you know, The Sound of Music, uh, those are like based on the actual Bond traps. And somebody was like, you know, we're not getting down into the nitty gritty of the, the real story of these real people, but it's more like this beautiful imagined parable that people can get into. It's just all the different ways that the directors and the producers and the writers just like sort of reimagine like the story and how it's going to play into the theaters where they're able to just like, even as the story, let's face it sucks. I think we know how we can make it better, make it good. And that's, and even if it's good, we can make it even better. So that's just, yeah, it's, I think that's it. just yeah. like understanding this book is great, but now we're making a movie. Let's and I it. think if you come into it with that, just like understanding we are shifting gears. Uh, I think that's when it works. That That's, it's perfect. And honestly, when you talked about um, how Guillermo del Toro got with the uh, German author to create that book, I'm like, man, just, that guy is just, a, just brilliant when it comes to fantasy. Like he's just, he's just so talented with this. I mean, Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water, the latest Pinocchio movie. Like, oh, he, that one's really great. Um, yeah, he's 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 phenomenal, but now I want to um, go back to y you and your uh, and your work, uh, Anna, because I wanted to um, dive away from um, film to what you've done while you were at uh, the new school. So I understand you wrote uh, an essay, "A Dream of the Future: NYC Reimagined uh, Post COVID," <laughs> and I got to read your essay. Excellent work, by the way. I really liked it. Enjoy the essay, but one thing that you mentioned in there was something that just stuck out to me: reality is stranger than uh, fiction, and that really had me thinking because you know reality is this the life people live, just the things they see is what drives 
like so many stories, you know, as we talked about Lord of the Rings or Hans Labyrinth or that King Kong, just um, stories that where people were just like, let's just create something wild out of something we've seen or experienced. So what's your relationship with just the strangeness that reality can, can offer? Uh, I mean, reality is, is weird. Um, so Colombia, obviously, we're famous for Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, I worked at the Gao Foundation in Cartagena for a while. That was, uh, it's like after my first semester of college over the summer. Um, it's about, you know, good journalism because he started out as a journalist. So I helped put together some stuff they were doing. And he would say, you know, people call it magical realism, but that's just what life in Colombia is like. Um, it's true that uh, I feel like sometimes if you if you sort of sit down to tell stories, people are like, wow. Um, because I, I feel like we forget that life is, if you really stop to think about it, it's so strange. You know, just the reality of what we go through and, you know, stories and, and family stories. And, you know, I feel like we've all had that experience either telling the story or hearing the story, but somebody will tell a story that you're like, what? like that happened to you and they'll tell it like it's just the most offhand thing you know so um it's like i when... just really i really love that because it's those things where you stop to think about it, like that's that's wow that's like crazy that's that's something that happened and um it's like when people are create it's like what inspires people to create documentaries and like write short fiction novels of that sort of thing where we're just like oh my gosh i can't believe that yeah and uh, i actually think sometimes um i mean I'm, I'm hardly the first person to say this but a lot of times fiction allows us to tell truth more clearly than actually telling the truth um one of my favorite genres is horror and the best horror is allegorical right like the 80s zombies movies are really fear of communism and like becoming part of this faceless horde. Um, and Guillermo del Toro himself has spoken a lot, like he deals with like fascism and authority and outcasts in society through literal monsters, but it's it's an extended uh, metaphor. So um, the story that you're referencing, um, you know, we were invited to sort of like uh, after the pandemic, you know, sort of sky's the limit uh, future for NYC and you know, something that you would propose. And um, there's some really cool proposals in there. Like, you know, a lot of people pick some really specific stuff and stuff that could be used to address the housing crisis and all that. But um, I got to thinking, and I, I quoted her in that essay too, Audre Lord, where she said, you know, nobody leads a single issue life. You know, nobody, uh, I believe is in response to like the idea of a single issue voter because nobody lives a single issue life. Um, so what, that's why I went sort of through research of a lot of different things we could do, um, for the future. And then because there were all these different ideas, instead of being like, we could do this and we could do this. I put it together as a short story of somebody who sort of lives in that New York after all these things. Uh, and the specific, um, element about the whole reality stranger than fiction is, um, that, to this day, people in New York, the actual city of New York, they use dogs to um, hunt rats, to eliminate rats, um, which is, if you stop to think about it, pretty much the best solution because it's all natural. It's um, 
the dogs enjoy it. Um, well, the rest, the rest, you know, like, yeah, it's minimally damaging to sort of buildings and all that. And one of the resources that I read was this interview uh, about a guy who organizes these people, these rat catchers with their dogs. And he said that one of the, the people that he consults to know what areas really need help is a homeless guy who is able to connect to the internet because he has a way of sort of building a hookup for it. And he messages this guy, he's putting together all this information as to where to go, like which areas really need help uh, hunting rats. And obviously the people that need most help of this nature are people who have no other resources. And I believe he points it out, he's like, look, it's really difficult being homeless, being poor, being marginalized. And it's even more difficult if there's rats. So at least this is something that we can do. Uh, all those things are, are true. All those things are, are true. And, you know, just, I mean, if you think about it, dogs are also like, so we grabbed a wolf and then we made him our best friend. And some of them are tiny. Some of them are huge. And some of them literally are born to do jobs. Like we, they're born knowing to do jobs because we, uh, put that work in, you know, um, like border collies and that they say, like, you don't teach them to herd. They're either born with a herding instinct or not, but they do it. So I think that's, that's fascinating. And, um, something that I, I mean, clearly I love dogs, but I don't know if you've ever seen like agility tournaments or all that stuff and nobody's making these dogs do it. And they're clearly having the time of their life going like, I love the American Kennel Club's agility contest because these dogs are just clearly doing it because they genuinely love it. And uh, it's like going back to all those fantasy series where it's like the hero has this animal companion that it has a bond with. And then it, we have that, um, which is if you stop to think about it, but we have that. Um, we have people who are like, yeah, I know exactly what my cat means with that facial expression. <laughs> which, if you think about it, it's wild. But I think that's, that's actually the beauty of fiction because it can take those disparate, like, wow, um, everyday things and then make it into a story where you go, oh, okay, like, wow. And also because real life is, is messy in the sense that there's no story, like there's no through line, you know, there's no, this is where we're going to start it and this is where we're going to end it. Um, and fiction is able to do that. But yeah, like a lot of the really fun stories, you know, people say like, yeah, that was a real conversation or that was something that really happened. Um, I mean, going back to Goodfellas, the scene where they, they go to Joe Pesci's character's mom's house in the middle of the night, she makes them pasta. That's Martin Scorsese's actual mom. And he told her, look, uh, your direction for the scene is just, your son hasn't been around in a while. He came home late with his friends and you want to feed him. And like everything she says in the scene, uh, she like shows them her art. And it's like, well, when are you going to come around? And what are you eating? And in this iconic scene, it's just, that's, just yeah, natural. That's what she is. That's, you know, those are the conversations that people have that people tell you. And I think we especially saw it, uh, not to harp on the pandemic, but like all these places where it was like, there's deer in the middle of the city because no one's out here. Yeah. A friend of mine, um, he lives kind of outside, but with the city and it's not like, like way in the mountains or anything. It's like, there's other houses around and all that, but, um, there's a tigrillo, it's like, it means, like the little name is Little Tiger. There's like these tiny wildcat animals. They're beautiful. And, you know, his parents just sent on the security footage, like, hey, 
there's one of those. They normally don't come out here, but came out here. Um, so I guess, you know, it's, it's always sort of on the edge. Of... Think of how bizarre just that is. A, just, it's so bizarre to think about New York just being so quiet, so empty that the deer, the wildlife are just wandering around like, oh, my gosh. This is like everybody's just able to look at that like, oh, my gosh, like what is happening right now? But one of my favorite stories about that is, you know, all these pandemic things, it's like Times Square is totally empty. And, uh, you know, Vanilla Sky, the movie, Tom Cruise, going back to that, uh, the opening scene is he has a, a nightmare where he's alone in the world and he's driving a sports car in New York. And he drives up to Times Square and he realizes it's completely empty, like it's weird. And he gets out and there's no one and it's completely empty. And then he wakes up. And people are like, well, how did you film that? And they're like, actually, if you go at the right time, like early enough in the morning, that's what it looks like. And I've always loved that because people are always like, how did you do that? Like, that must be a crazy effect because there's always, and they're like, no, if you go at the right time, you'll find it. Oh and God. I always love that story. <laughs> that, is, that is a really interesting story. And so it's amazing you found the... Uh... Just go at the right. He, I love how he just said it's like just kept it so simple. Like it's simple. Just go at the right time, and you have your shot. There's no science or anything to it. It's just just knowing your area. And, oh my gosh, these, these people are too good at this. Honestly, um, nothing but, like a practical effect. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like a practical effect. Um, but you know. Fiction does sort of speak life, real life right now. And a lot of a lot of film and TV have tried to capitalize on that. And I remember reading this, watching this one video on like what made Watchmen so great. And it was how it was able to speak on the real life you know, problems. It touched on you know, Vietnam, touched on just the impending, just the the impending doom of humanity, just the tension, the growing tensions that bring people closer to world, bring us closer to World War Three, and just the fear of that. And then they said, look at it now, where it's just like, hey, let's, um, are like, hey, let's, you know, let's fight for the earth, or like, we're fighting like racial justice, or, you know, LGBT rights and everything. And it just feels like they're basically saying that the stories, they'll feel a lot more in your face with their issues rather than more subtle. And, it's just it kind of takes away from the audience, like, and causes people to say, like, this is, you know, this is too woke, this is too liberal, and everything. And it just causes more sort of what's the word? It's just more division than anything else. Uh, how would you respond to this sort of like sort of just shift? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because I. I mean, we are definitely more polarized generally, and I'm not even just going to say in the States, like I've seen this back home, and I think in the world in general, I think there's a lot of things driving that polarization, you know, we don't need to get that deeply into it, but obviously when there are difficult times, that, you know, like we've gone through and not just like a pandemic, but economically and all that, you know, people tend to kind of entrench because, you know, what you know kind of feels safe. Uh, but I think it's kind of two different phenomena that are unfortunately crashing into each other, just like in this specifically, which one is the old joke of like, if I tell you to not think of pink elephants, you're going to think of them and you're going to see them everywhere. 
It's like if I told you, hey, just think of everything during a day that you see that's green. You're going to be like, oh, my God, it's everywhere. But it was always there. You just you're actively noticing it now. So I think the problem is that because we're so on edge with our sort of you start seeing it everywhere. So everything is like, oh, it's you know, it's not just the character isn't just wearing pink. It's like, oh, it's pink because of it. Like, you know, insert whatever um, thing, you know, you believe in or, or you want to, which we've seen. Um, uh, we've seen also uh, like the, there's a statistic at the start of the pandemic where everybody was watching the Contagion movie with like Matt Damon and Gwyneth Paltrow and all that, which is about a global pandemic. And it was like a lot of people, like if you didn't know that it was made before, it feels super on the nose, but it wasn't. It was just, um, so it's one of those things where like, if you look at it with those eyes, you're like, oh, it's everywhere. Uh, but also going back to what I was saying about horror being allegorical, the thing is we know the current issues, so we're able to spot them because, you know, if you, you're a teenager that was born, I'm just going to say, let's say you were born in 2000 and in 2015 or whatever, you see the original slasher movies, you're just going to see a slasher movie. But somebody in the 80s would be like, oh, yeah, this is about AIDS and like the fear of sexuality that's come out because of this. Right. Because we're in this crisis and we're thinking about this. And then and then, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, the satire of consumerism is super on the nose because it's the 80s. In it. But if you see it at a different time, you're not going to see that, you know. Um, but there's because, some. Yeah, they're very I mean, um, again, because I was, I was looking into this very recently. But, you know, when you look at the decades, it's like, oh, obviously this is in reaction to do this and doing this. But like when you're in it in the moment, it's like, OK, we get it. That's this is what you're talking about. But I don't think it's as on the nose. I think if you move away from it or it's somebody who doesn't have that context, it probably won't feel that sort of in your face as people like to say. But it's also, I mean, simply this is what we're talking about, right? Like this is the polarization. This is the things that are being talked about. These are the, I hate using the word culture wars, but you know, so it's kind of like, they're also just being topical, you know, like. Yeah. But it's. fun to when you're making yeah. art. But you know, there's some, when you brought up like slashers and like horror, I thought to myself, there's some, at least some, you know, horror films that have been able to stand like the test of time and be seen like for what they are. It's and one of one that comes to mind is you ever seen the um, film, uh, the anime film, uh, Perfect Blue? I think it was. No, I, but I know which one you're talking about, right? That's yeah. the one that uh, Black Swan. Yeah. For those who don't know, uh, Perfect Blue is basically a story about this um, pop singer who tries to step away from that career and go into another one um, of acting. And she suffers like this huge, like sort of identity crisis where she's continuously tied to, you know, the pop singer persona all at the same time, also being like harassed by this creepy stalker dude of an obsessed fan kind of feels betrayed by her move from the music uh, industry. And it's super disturbing, super weird, but also really fascinating and just uh, definitely worth a watch. But um, as that one is just one of the ones where people can people are still like talking about. That. I've seen YouTube videos like just analyzing that film, and I was just like, "Holy crap!" Those filmmakers were geniuses. My gosh, this is this is amazing. The more you look at it, yeah, I think. I mean, what the things that stand the test of time are actually, uh, I agree, things that aren't so tied to a specific time and place because you know they 
the audience will lose that context. But I mean, on the one hand, you know, a well-told story is a well-told story. When something is put together well, it's just a good piece of art. Um, but I think things like that, those things that on the surface are speaking about something very specific, but ultimately kind of speak to all of us, you know, that stress of wanting to change, um, you know, shifting from something that I'm comfortable at, but I'm not happy with to something that I might not be good at, but I, I want to do. And, you know, that fear of, I mean, most of us don't have to fear stalkers the way somebody like Katy Perry might have to fear stalkers, but just the idea that somebody could sort of latch on to you, you know, a stranger that you don't know that might come after you or, or somebody who, who's kind of obsessed with pulling you back or, you know, those sorts of fears about connecting with other people. Because um, some some really good, um, not just horror movies, but several movies are based on like actual uh, crime waves or things that happened. And in the end, you know, we're all, there's some broad strokes things that we're afraid of you know, receiving violence upon ourselves, home invasions or war or death that generally, you know, if, if it's a good piece of art that still tells a story that we can understand. Um, and I, by understand, I mean, sort of on that level where it's like, I might not be a pop star or whatever, but I can sort of get her anguish and get why her identity crisis is happening. Uh, I think those are the ones that sort of stick it out, you know, the ones that tell a well-told story and there's stories that we're like, yeah, I get that. I see that. Um, because yeah, if they're very tied to time and place, like that happens a lot with very referential humor because, you know, when those things get lost, it's like, I don't know if that ever happened to you, but sometimes as a kid watching movies with my parents and like a person would show up in a way that I knew had to be a cameo, but I had no idea who this person is, but my parents were laughing. Right? Like that, that will happen. But then there's other forms of comedy where it'll just, you know, um, like the kind of films where it's like a setup, where it's like a throwaway line and then it becomes a punchline. So like that still works because you're watching that one. Um, so yeah, I feel like if it's a story that's, I don't know if the word is contained, but sort of a story that anybody at any point can access and get the full story from, I mean, obviously there'll, there'll always be context stuff and all that, but if you, if it's a story that you can, that allows you to understand and connect with it, then I think those are the, the movies that stand the test of time. The ones that aren't tied to trends, the ones that aren't so tied to a specific time and place. Um, I think those are the ones that, that work. And also, I mean, there are stories that we, like we tell the same fairy tales or you know, we still tell the Shakespeare stories because even though that has a very specific context, um, a lot of his themes, you know, love and revenge and duty and um, guilt and all these things, that still applies to all of us. You know, like we're not Macbeth murdering people, but we sort of understand how you can go mad with guilt, right? Like everybody's like, yeah, I get how the weight of that would eventually become too much. Mm. Um, it's really... It's really just, really just keeps, it really just has you just stop and thinking of how like all these like human characters like just come to these like different mindsets and how all these problems like wonder if like they get resolved or not. It's really just the more movies you read and the more, um, movie, yeah, the more movies you watch, and the more books you read. Sorry about that. It just really gets you like really stopping and thinking about 
like all the good things that happen thinking about just just life in general just like how humanity thinks like period because like he's what we just talked about like fiction like reflects real life and just how we interact how we think how we like just go about our lives and just hearing like how horror itself can be like anthology on like aids or identity or you know com communism i just hope now eventually people can like sort of be come to the point where they can just look at a movie and maybe that movie is just not what you know it's promoted to be but it's something much much deeper than that and uh, it's, just, it's, just, it's just really just got me thinking so much about like how media has been like um, how film and TV and books have been that I'm just like, oh my gosh, what other films like in TV have there been that <laughs> I did not realize had like an undertone to them or like a hidden theme? Yeah, no. And that's, and the thing is um, kind of like, obviously we talk about separating art from the artist, but there's also, um, I'm not going to embarrass myself trying to pronounce his last name, but Chuck, um, He's the one that wrote Fight Club. Fight Club is also a book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he wrote, um, I can't remember the name of the book right now, but it's about an author and like, there's a lot of stuff going on. But one of the things in that book that always stuck with me is everything is a self-portrait, whether you mean it to or not, but it's kind of everything that you put in there. It's the stuff that you make. So, you know, sometimes that'll happen where people are like, well, I didn't realize that I was putting that in there but it's still there, you know, it's obviously what you think is the kind of people that you think are beautiful, what you think is desirable, what you think is socially acceptable. Um, all these things, they go in there. I mean, obviously going back to Quentin Tarantino, this is very, like he has admitted this, Quentin Tarantino enjoys women's feet and that is in his films. Like, even if you didn't know that, looking at those movies, you could probably go, yeah, I can infer something that about one, that one scene in this movie. That one scene in Pulp Fiction where um, Uma Thurman is just walking barefoot and it's just zoomed in on her feet, or like yeah, one... he admits that. But even if he didn't, you can definitely be like, well, I can think of you know this person. This was something that informed how this was made. Uh, so I think that's that's also interesting because a lot of times. Um, you know, if it's ever happened to you, or sometimes you'll put out a piece that you didn't think had all this and somebody goes, oh yeah, I can see what you're doing with this and this and this reference. And you go, I didn't notice that I did that, but it's, it's true. It's in there. And you know, that, that comes out in weird ways. You know, the things that, you know, if I told you, you know, make a scary movie, you're going to go, well, what scares me? What do I think is scary? Or, you know, a rom-com and you're like, well, what's my great romantic dream what is what woman would like when she turns around I would have that montage in my head with the music and she turns slowly and you would be like okay well for me that woman would be uh so yeah there, there's that very interesting mix for those things and those anxieties and what was going on at the time what did we think was cool um you know because like the Terminator wears a leather jacket because a leather jacket is cool, but you know, that, that was already in there. And then it's like, well, you know, the Terminator is cool and he has a cool leather jacket. Uh, so I think, I think it's very interesting. Um, Definitely. It's, I think it's, you know, obviously that's somebody else whose reputation has shifted a lot, but Joss Sweden, he 
did, uh, he was like, the thing about art is that it's like having a kid and a kid grows up and talks back to you. So, you know, it, I love the context changes and you know, that stuff, like you look back and you go, Oh, well that, you know, all that stuff is in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's why there, you can study things like me or just sit and look at scripts and all that. And then there's just, uh, the stuff that'll happen, you know, those actors will be like, well, yeah, we did fall in love on set. And you're like, oh, you can see that in the movie. <laughs> or, uh, Definitely. It recently came out, but uh, Daisy Jones and the Six uh, is based on, it's a very famous performance of Silver Springs where it really looks like Stevie Nicks and Lizzie Buckingham are about to like physically fight it out because Ooh. they're, they're singing together. Like Fleetwood well, Max music was, they were all kind of dating each other when they should have been. And then they broke up and like their music is very much about that. And it was a very charged performance. And you can see that like, it's a very famous performance. Like you can feel it. And somebody wrote uh, the book Daisy Jones six. And now it's the adaptation with uh, Riley Keough and Sam Claflin. Um, but that was, you know, in there. And then that gets baked into uh, a book. But then this person who's obviously a fan of this decade puts in other things. And then now when we look at the the TV show, you and I know Riley Keough is Elvis's granddaughter, which adds something to that performance in that context, intentional or unintentional. This is so many parts. It's so it's too many to count, really. Um, but yeah, that's just the magic of like of media, film and television. And there's all different ways you can just tie it right back together. So, you know, through that and through your just analysis of media and film, I just want to take um, this last two questions and dive um, back to you, Anna. And as someone who's worked in like press and PR, how's the job How's the job been for you? How are you enjoying it? Like, what what is that job, PR and everything for you? Um, you know, it's very much about, we always talked about making somebody else's job easier. Uh, so we would always go, you know, if I got a press release, what makes it easier for me? So it's the stuff up top. So we would do the bullet points, but also we would be like, look, um, what is a really cool syllable aspect of this? So we would just put that in there. Like I, we had this um, sort of weird Russian horror movie about, um, uh, they have sort of a mermaid myth called a Rusalka and they, they eat people. And we did, you know, people in Golden, they didn't know that much about it. So we're like, why don't we do five really spooky monsters from Slavic mythology? And then somebody can share that really easily, you know, like, that could be easy for Instagram. It could be easy for online. Um, so just trying to like anticipate people's needs and sort of, cause we always say that we're like, you know, it's not enough to just be like, this movie's made like this. It's things like behind the scenes stories or why this is interesting or important. Um, you know, we had uh, a lot of Korean films that did well. So we were like, you know, let's just go all in and be like, hey, Korean films are doing really well in Columbia. Here's some numbers. Here's some cool stuff about the Korean film industry. And that also lays the groundwork for in six months when I have another Korean movie, this person who already knew that went, you know, this is part of a trend. So I don't just talk about this movie. I can say something. Um, so that's really interesting. And like, we would do stuff like recut trailers or like posters or like 
you know, make it easy. We're like the film stills that you can use for your article are right here. Uh, so just thinking about those needs, especially now audiovisual needs. So we had to think, um, let's have the poster in different sizes because some people might want to put it up on their Instagram, you know, or just make that stuff easier or even be like, Hey, you know, I could cut you a clip for your Instagram if you need it. And then part of PR, which is interesting beyond, uh, obviously you want to do screenings with influencers, with press people. And you want to go, um, like there's a very popular, uh, historian in Colombia, Diana Uribe. She, you know, she has books, she had a podcast, she used to have a TV set. People love her. People are like, I just love the way she tells us about history. So obviously when we had, she loves the sixties, she's done a lot of work on the 60s. We had a film set in the sixties. It's like, well, we need, we need her to talk about it. Uh, but that's sort of one end. And the other end is working with the actual um, talent, which is really interesting. It goes back to a lot of what you were asking about sort of artists and then selling it. And that sort of middle point, because we weren't like the hard numbers people, but um, something that would happen for us a lot, we were like, Hey, you know, can you record some sound bites for the press? Can you, and a lot of times they're like, but the movie's really good. So I don't understand why I need to do that. And I was like, the movie is really good, but I need people to want to see it. So I need you to make yourself available for interviews. I need stories. I need sound bites. I need, because we need that sort of push. It's so interesting because obviously artists are seeing like this whole piece of art that they love and the, all that. And I have to be like, that's great, but I need a 30 second clip. Like, or I just need to pick some stills because it's like, but you know, the movie, like I wouldn't be able to pick a still would be like picking a child. And I'm like, just send me 50 pictures. I'll pick one. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of interesting balance. Uh, and I think it goes back to that. Like sometimes you lose that objectivity and then, you know, you, people who are more experienced, obviously they're easier to deal with. Like we had a movie, um, it was produced with Gael Garcia Bernal like the Mexican actor, he was great. And he just sent us, like, he literally sent it to my phone, my personal phone. He was like, hey, you have WhatsApp? Great, I'm just gonna do, uh, just send you three versions, 30 seconds, you guys play that on the radio. It was like, hey, it's Gal Garcia Bernal, this is my new movie, it's gonna be in theaters on this day. Don't miss it. Wow. That's it, it was like, yeah, we, and I can go to a radio station and be like, you can play this. And it's personal, like, it's clearly his voice, so it makes you, like that is that is really good, but it's like I obviously understand where artists are coming from, um, but it, it has been really interesting to me because a lot of times they're like, you know, but the movie is like this. They see this entire movie, and I'm like, great, but I need to sell somebody on going to see the movie. Uh, so that is something definitely. Uh, if you're getting into that, you need to understand that, and you're just you're anticipating a lot of different needs and balancing a lot of different people because there's, what is somebody who loves this actor gonna wanna see on Instagram? What is gonna make it easier for a journalist to put up something from this press release so that I can do that so it's really easy for them to do? And then how do I best get this from the talent? They can be director, they can be producers, whoever, without them feeling you know, that we're just like, because you also don't want to compromise a relationship with them um, because you don't want them to feel that you're just like taking things, but uh, making it very clear, like, I love the movie and I believe in the movie. 
but this is what we need to do. Um, so yeah, that was a lot of balancing um, that and just because some of them were like, but I don't understand wh why the need for this is, or like, why would the press want to speak with me before the movies and theaters? And it's like, well, we'll do a screening, but also because we want them to post this so that people will want to go. And then just thinking, you know, who, because a lot of those times would be like, you know, an influencer that would connect with this content that they want to do this. And also, you know, I want them to do this because it's good for me too. Um, so we had, you know, um, for the Robin Hood movie, for example, we communicated with the, they're like an arrow shooting range. And we're like, you know, these influencers, they want to go, we're taking them to the premiere and then they'll post about this and they'll post about your place and just trying to, you always have to think, because I, I feel like a lot of people come at it sort of like, I need to, to get them to do this for me. And you really have to think, uh, they should want to do this for me. How do I present this in a way that they're like, I am in, like, obviously, like this is, um, so always think about if you can fulfill their need, then they'll fulfill yours, right? It's not like, do this for me just cause. Always come at it like, I have a great opportunity for you. In fact, we're gonna do a press screening, but some of the actors are gonna be there so you could get personal pictures for your Instagram. Damn, that's-, we've done, that's... We've, done that. we've done that, we're like, hey, you know, she, this beautiful actress, she's gonna be there, get a picture with her. Yes, please, <laughs> by all means, there you go. I love that, I love that right there. And so for my last question, you know, as you've been from Columbia and New York City, what are some of the differences in, like, you think there might be in um, in media, like production and uh, distribution? Well, Columbia, is, it's, a, it's a lot smaller. So everybody kind of knows everybody. So as soon as you sort of start, you start getting those connections, which is good and bad, obviously. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very interesting because a lot of people are shooting in Columbia now. But obviously, it's really hard to get there. So um, you, you might have heard of um, Dynamo. They they did Narcos. They did Mile 33. They did uh, Triple Frontier, Gemini Man. Like, all these huge Hollywood productions. Like, you know, I, I had friends who were like, yeah, now I'm here with Will Smith. He's really nice. That's true. Everybody said that Will Smith was a delight. Um, but a lot of times, they'll connect with those people. So even though there's all these huge Hollywood productions filming there, they're going through a local people so you can connect with them. Um, and it is something, it was very interesting because a lot of times those movies might not have those like huge local screenings, but they're going through those spaces and we all kind of know each other. And like, there's, so it, it's interesting because it's easier to kind of get to people. But on the other hand, uh, you have to balance those sort of personal relationships. Obviously there's not, as much sort of as many outlets really um, too. So there's that balance. And um, I mean, on the plus side, it, like influencers were kind of quote unquote easier to get to, um, but it, it was kind of, it's a smaller world, which is good and bad. And obviously the US, it's a lot bigger. So much bigger. Um, yeah, I mean, that also good and bad um, because, you know, it's harder to get to people, but there's also a lot of stuff going on on every level and then there's you know people who are more accessible for whatever reason and then uh there's a lot of like 
somebody owns all these companies, but then they're all doing their things separately, but then there are connections through here. And then there are, um, I mean, obviously every industry to some degree, it's like, if you get in there, you kind of start getting to know people and it's like, cause everybody's kind of working in the same field. Uh, I don't think it's as fast here, but obviously ultimately eventually you sort of start getting to know people. Um, but production, that was the thing. Cause in Columbia, since it was like those smaller productions, we were very connected with them. We worked with them kind of like on every stage. And then here, I feel like it's a lot more separate. Um, like they're almost like separate companies, separate teams. And the other one, it was sort of kind of a through line. Um, but also those things are with globalization. It's also interesting because then there's a lot of people who are filming because a lot of stuff here films in like certain states that have tax breaks. And then I'm assuming those probably have the same equivalent of the local industry. And then there's also, you know, you'll have to connect to, to Europe and all that stuff. Um, because, you know, from, from Columbia, we'd work with certain big distribution houses in Europe and stuff because we would buy the rights for our area. So you sort of, everybody at some point in the line is kind of connected. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot bigger here. It's probably harder to know where to start just because there's so many more doors that you might want to knock on mm. back home. There's fewer doors. So, you know, it's kind of like, if you get through one, you're, you've kind of been connected to the whole thing and you can move within that area. Um, but you know, there's also, there's fewer too. So it's, it's an interesting balance and something that I've seen it's happening here first, but it's starting to happen there too. You know, there's the people who have started their own blogs and then become famous through there and then sort of connected to, or, you know, self-published books or internet phenomenons. And like that is happening at a slower rate back home. So that's been sort of interesting to kind of see how it's been happening here so that we can see how it happens there. Um, yeah, it's just, <laughs> What, what an interesting balance, small in uh, Colombia than in New York. And so, you know, and, and just to agree that, yeah, New York, just the industries in the U.S. period are just so gigantic, just unbelievable, frankly. But there's also a bigger audience share, too, because that's the thing. Um, there's, uh, it, for the film industry, the the word penetration means how many screens per certain amount of people mm -hmm. and in the States. There's a, it, it's a far higher number than in Columbia, even though there's a lot more people, there's also a lot more, you know, movies in the movie theaters. So more people are going anywhere. It's, it's sort of proportional. Um, so yeah, even in proportion, you know, more people can come see movies here and they do. It's like, uh, I believe the statistic back home, is like people watch 1.5 movies a year in the theaters. And then here, I think it's 2.5. Obviously, you know, there's people on either end, people who never go and people who go 10 times a year or more. Um, but yeah, like that's the thing. There's also more people who you can access and on different levels. I mean, New York is a city where you can have like a tiny little art house theater and you can still have enough people that go to that. Um, so just also the broadness of the audience and the accessibility of the audience. As Columbia is still very regional, um, the vast majority of the population is concentrated in my home city. So, you know, there's that, but that's kind of, I mean, there's a few other big cities, but there's not a lot of 
room to grow. But here in the States, you could, there's a lot that you can go to. There's a lot of bigger cities you can. Okay. More, more broadly. Uh, so yeah, I mean the, the size, the size difference um, is very interesting, but indeed. that also means that there's more room for people in the industry too, because you just need more people. Indeed. Indeed you do. All right. I love that answer. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it for episode 31 of the upcoming. I want to give another big thank you to my guest, Ana Gutierrez. Thank you so much for coming down and just giving us your incredible insight. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. All right. So did I. So, ladies and gentlemen, like I said, that's all for this episode. Be sure to um, stay tuned on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, and also be sure to follow us on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. And, you know, we, uh, yeah, why don't I say, there we go. We release our episodes on Sunday. Sorry, just got a little tongue tied there. We release our episodes on Sundays. And, yeah, just, Tune in. These interviews are a lot of fun and just be ready for the next one because every guest here is equally just phenomenal. So with that being said, that is all and good night. Thank you for tuning in to the upcoming. If you like this, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. The best yet to come. Take care, everybody.